Now, then, with a view to the help and uh, guidance of God, let's uh, turn to Exodus 14 again. And uh, we'll read at verse 10. Exodus 14 and verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us? To bring us up out of Egypt. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. So the children of Israel, in verse 10, lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. Now, I'm very conscious at this stage in coming to the uh, famous crossing of the Red Sea that we appear to have uh, perhaps passed over uh, a couple of things. Notably, the fact that we're told that the Lord uh, went before his people from the very moment that they left their homes that night. He went before them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to guide them on their journey. We're told that that guidance didn't stop until they arrived at the promised land. Now, although I've passed over that, I, I will come back to it. I'll refer to it actually today, I hope, but I'll come back to it next Lord's Day because it is a very important passage. There's a reason why we're told that at this particular point, but still I think it might be better to look at it after the crossing of the Red Sea. And the crossing of the Red Sea is important really to take in conjunction with the Passover itself because it's very much tied to it. And as an event, it completes what the Passover began. In other words, it completes their deliverance from Egypt. The Passover made that deliverance certain because through it God forgave their sin and set them free judicially from the curse of the law, from the condemning power of sin. But the fact of the matter is that they were still in Egypt and God wanted their deliverance from it to be complete. So God is going to break Absolutely, the authority of Pharaoh and the Egyptians over God's people. And only then is Egypt behind them. And that reminds us in our own deliverance that Christ works for us. He doesn't just deal with the condemning power of sin, that we are under its condemnation, but he also frees us from its tyranny and its dominion in our lives. A once for all break so that we become his saints, 
his sanctified people. And these two aspects of our deliverance, if you like, the legal aspect and the experimental aspect, are brought before us here. First in the Passover and then in the Red Sea, where God breaks the hold of the Egyptians over us, no longer under the power, or under the tyranny at least, and the dominion of Satan. Now, we saw over the past few weeks in some detail with God's help the events of the Passover night. God, of course, judged unbelieving sinners through the plagues, and he showed mercy to his own believing people through the provision of the Lamb. And at midnight, as we read there, the angel of death, um, in a symbol um, of God's judgment, he passed through Egypt, bringing death to every household, except that he passed over, in the Passover, he passed over all the houses of God's people. Where instead of having their own firstborn being slain, or even themselves collectively as a nation, God's firstborn being slain, uh, there was another slain for them. God's firstborn, typified by the Lamb, was put to death for them. So, with the Lamb of God suffering for them, they, of course, are set free. Now, you'll remember when they took the meal that evening... They took the meal as a prepared people, a people ready to go on a pilgrimage. Their clothes were belted around the waist, they had their staff in their hand, and they had their shoes on their feet. Their families were ready, the livestock were ready, everything was ready to go. And sure enough, shortly after midnight, when the nation was plunged into distress, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and effectively just told them to get out. This is what God had said. Even when he called Moses right at the beginning, he said that by the time he had finished dealing with Pharaoh, Pharaoh would move from a position of determination not to let them go to actually driving them out of the land with a strong hand. Pharaoh, of course, doesn't stay in that position. I'll come to tonight, God willing. He does not stay in that position. Uh, but Pharaoh at this point drives them out. And as the psalmist tells us, Egypt was glad when forth they went. In fact, the psalmist tells us that the fear of Israel had fallen upon Egypt. And uh, when God is working in his church and on behalf of his church, the world fears and respects the church. Uh, when the Spirit of God uh, departs from the church, the world begins to oppress the church and to mock the church. So it still is. But on that night, it wasn't just Egypt that were glad when they went forth, but Israel themselves were glad too. Uh, they could sing what they sang many years later, coming back from Babylon, that when Zion's bondage, God turned back as men that dreamed were me, were, were we. And everything, of course, was done that night uh, with amazing speed and decently and in order. And that wasn't easily done. We're talking here about 650,000 men, besides women and children, 
and a group that we're going to meet with later, very often called the mixed multitude, who wanted to identify themselves with the children of Israel, although they didn't belong to them, they went up as well. So we're talking about in excess of two million or so people. Now that's a third of the population of Scotland leaving the nation of Egypt just all of a sudden together. We're told that they went out in orderly ranks and we're told that they went out with boldness. They went out with boldness. That of course isn't taking into account the amount of livestock that went with them too. Now they made quick progress from Ramesses, just a few miles to Succoth, and another few miles to Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And from there, remarkably, uh, believe it or not, it's just an 11-day journey to the Promised Land. It's astonishing that this actually ended up taking 40 years, um, but there's another story in that. But the fact of the matter is that it's just an 11-day journey to the Promised Land if you're following the established trade route which runs through the land of the Philistines. So what appeared to be simple um, lay before them, but of course it wasn't as simple as that for a few different reasons. The fact of the matter is that God didn't want to bring them round the Red Sea he actually wanted them to cross it. And that, of course, meant for Israel that as a people, as God's redeemed people, they're encountering their first trial. And it's in that light that I want to look at the crossing of the Red Sea with you today and tonight as the first trial that they meet with. I want to look at the trial and how they respond to it. And tonight... God's counsel to them and God's deliverance of them in his great faithfulness and in his mercy. <coughs> now, first of all, let's look at the trial itself. And the trial comes about because of two unexpected diversions on their route. The first is that instead of going round the arm of the Red Sea and into the Promised Land, God actually moves them further south, down beside the arm of the Red Sea. So he isn't taking them in the ordinary established route that they would have expected. The second diversion, well, we're told that was to avoid the Philistines, which I'll come back to. The second diversion was that God actually told them to come back and to set up camp beside the sea. Speak to the children of Israel, verse 2, that they turn, that's to turn back and camp before Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. Now it seemed to Israel undoubtedly a strange time, A, to turn back, and B, to camp at all. You would expect in this situation just to hurry and to keep hurrying until you are out of it altogether. After all, the risk would be that the Egyptians would regret what they had done and would pursue them. Now, like I say, I'll consider that more tonight, but the fact of the matter is that 
They did do that. Pharaoh and uh, his counsellors immediately regretted their decision. After all, they were losing a huge part of their economy overnight, over two million people, and so they went after the Lord's people. And of course, they weren't encumbered by families, by children, or by livestock. It was a disciplined army moving quickly, so they caught up with them fairly quickly. And the fact of the matter is that just because of where Israel were encamped, they were hemmed in. Hemmed in by the Red Sea in front of them, by mountains and wilderness on either side of them, and the clearest path was taken up by the Egyptians coming up behind them. That is their first trial. Now, friends, it's not strange that their first trial is one in which they're hemmed in. That's one of the words the Apostle Paul uses. We were looking at Romans 8 recently, where Paul describes this very often as being hemmed in by our providences, where God brings us into very strange situations indeed, and we feel we can't move in them. We can't move at all. And these trials, well, they're appointed for us, of course, we know that. Sometimes we don't know exactly why, but they're appointed for us, and they often come unexpectedly. They take us by surprise. Now, I suppose you and I would know straight away what Israel ought to do. We know that instinctively. Their call is to simply trust in God. there's, There's nothing really they can do until... God communicates them. Um, God, God communicates to them what they should do and how they should do it. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently lived. I think I said to you very recently that these are words that we learn. Most of us learned these words. We're privileged enough, most of us, to have learned the psalms since childhood. That's a wonderful privilege that God gave us. That's one of the psalms most of us learned early on. Who would have thought that it contained one of the most difficult spiritual lessons? Hard enough to learn. In fact, it requires to be learned and learned again. I waited for the Lord and patiently did bear. At length to me he did incline my voice and cry to hear. There's a lot in that. There's a lot in that. Waited Patiently, at last, after a long time, he heard and delivered me. Now, you might say, well, what exactly were they expecting God to do? Well, that's in a way neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is that they had every reason to expect that God would open a way out even if it looks impossible to them. Plenty of reasons for believing that. First of all, God had actually told them that the Egyptians would follow. When God um, told them to camp beside the sea, God communicated to them through Moses that Pharaoh will pursue you and I will gain honour over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. So God said so. Very often, you know, whether we register it, whether, whether we clock it or take it on board or not, God will have communicated something to you in connection with the trial that you are in. Maybe for some reason you haven't taken it in. I'll come to that too. But God communicates in all these situations. And he had told them 
not to be surprised if the Egyptian army comes up behind them. But as well as that, there was the fact that God had just been so good to them in their very recent past. He had delivered them from plagues that had mysteriously visited the whole land of Egypt except the land of Goshen where they lived themselves to the extent that the words of the psalmist were true of them that no plague shall near thy dwelling come. They must have been in awe to see plague after plague throughout the country except the region where they lived themselves. What's more, when they left, the psalmist tells us that none were weak in their tribes. There was even a miraculous providence in that. There wasn't a single sick person that had to be taken care of on that whole journey. There was nothing like that to slow them down. It was an extraordinary token from God, just like God gives us. You know, if we look for them, tokens of his special presence, like I say, if we look for them, none were weak in their tribes. And what's more, as well as sparing them from the plagues, God had made special provisions on the journey. God told them to ask for gold and silver and other gifts from the Egyptians. Now I'm sure they they wondered at that, uh, but God said, do it. And God had so put the fear of um, God and his people into the heart of the ordinary everyday Egyptians that they actually gave them gifts of gold and silver. Now again, if they had remembered the word of God, God had said that that would happen. When Moses uh, spoke to Israel originally in chapter 3 and in verse uh, 21, God said, this is at the burning bush, and you'll remember that Moses communicated all this to Israel. He said, I'll stretch out my hand against Egypt with wonders, and he will let you go. And I will give the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, so that when you go out you will not go empty-handed. Every woman shall ask of her neighbour articles of silver, gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. In fact, it wasn't even that God said it then, but if you go back 400 years to when God made a covenant with Abraham originally, God said to Abraham that your descendants will be strangers in a land not theirs, and they will afflict them for 400 years. But the nation that they serve, I will judge, and they shall come out with great possessions. Isn't it? Marvellous how God in his word plans and prepares for everything. And the most diligent spiritual people in Israel would recognise that God's word is being fulfilled step by step. I suppose one of the reasons that they were so willing to give articles like that may have had something to do with the fact that their conscience struck them. I mean, we hear quite a lot these days about making reparations to uh, countries that that were spoiled and abused by uh, richer and better-off countries. I'm quite sure the Egyptians uh, felt a measure of guilt 
that for hundreds of years they had enslaved this people, that they had their labour for nothing, and uh, that they were made wealthy by a people that they had um, forcibly subjugated in their own land. And, and perhaps it was guilt and a sense of conscience that, that moved them to give. But the word of God tells us that they feared them. Like I said earlier, the fear of God living amongst his people moved the world to give and to help. So no wonder, as I said earlier, as the Bible says, that they went out boldly from Egypt. God was upon their side. So not only had God told them that the Egyptians would come after them, but God had given them so many evidences of his power and of his kindness in the very recent past. Another reason to trust God was God's guidance in the present. They weren't stuck in the wilderness because they had gone out of the way or because they were rebellious. They were stuck because they had followed God's guidance. The pillar of cloud and fire was going before them, camping beside the Red Sea, and what's more, God's word communicated to them through Moses. Tell them to turn back and to camp beside the sea. And were told that they did so. So they were where they were because they did what God wanted them to do. And they went where God told them to go. Now we all know that it's not so easy to assume God's guidance and protection when we choose to go out of the way. Although the fact of the matter is that even when we do make wrong spiritual choices, out of selfishness or whatever, when we do make these wrong spiritual choices, if we are Christians, God will certainly overrule that. But the process involves pain. It involves discipline. And the diligent use of the means of grace in order to bring us back to where we should be. Depending on how willful and stubborn we were in committing the original sin. Were we just overtaken by a fault? Well, it's perhaps not such another, an, an evil thing. But if we went headlong into it, willfully and with our eyes open, well, that's another matter altogether. David, of course, is a classic example of that. He willfully did what he ought not to have done. Not just in connection with the woman, but even worse, in connection with her husband. Now God overruled that. It was the child of that woman who was to sit on his throne. But at what cost to David? What pain when the sword was let loose in his own family? The pain and the grief we can feel as we read the Psalms and as we read the history. So yes, if you take a willful step out of God's way, he will overrule it for you. But it will always involve discipline and pain and the diligent use of the means of grace. But whenever, in simple obedience, following the light that we have, whenever we make a choice, we can always expect God to intervene and to protect us in very special ways. The meek, that's the humble, in judgment he will guide 
and make his path to know. Uh, you, you could say, well, what if I just made a simple mistake? Well, God knows that. I, I'm just talking about you making an honest decision on the basis of the light that you have. God will grant you his guidance and his protection. He will guide you in judgment and he will make you to know his path. <coughs> so God's goodness to them in the past and they were where they were because of God's guidance to them in the present. And as well as God's guidance of them, there's also related to that the fact that God was actually present with them. In other words, it's not just the fact that God did guide them there, but God was actually with them. He was in the pillar of cloud and fire by day and by night. Like I say, come to that next time. But he was there. I am with you. And there was a token of that right in front <coughs> of their eyes. So plenty of reasons for trusting that God would open the way out. They just need to wait. There's not a lot of time. It doesn't matter. God can do a lot in the last minute. Now again, I suppose we can go behind all that and say, well, yes, but why does God take them into this situation? Why does he choose to bring them beside the Red Sea? And why does he bring themselves into our trials too? Well, I suppose at one level we know a, a short and easy answer to that, that the reason God brings us into trial is to refine our faith. The fact of the matter is that our faith exists in a kind of crude form. Um, it has other elements connected with it. There is so much dross attached to the gold and the silver. There's so much self attached to faith. The faith that we think we exercise as Christians, we think it is very pure. But it's not pure. It's genuine, but it's not pure. And God is in the business of purifying it until every element of dross is purged out of it. And he begins that process in this life. It's not consummate. It's not complete until heaven, but he begins it in this life. He burns it. That, that's what he does, but he puts it in a crucible and he burns off in the trial the the filth that's associated with it. There's so much self connected to your faith, you don't know the half of it. So much of self in it. It's only as we go on in the Christian life that we discover how much of self is still connected to faith and to our Christian life. And one thing this passage brings before us and before Israel straight away is that the glory of God matters to himself. It's not just a, a matter of bringing Israel into the promised land. It's a matter of God revealing his glory both to Egypt and to Israel. And that's why God says to them time and time again that he will have glory in the defeat over Pharaoh and he will have glory amongst Israel when he brings them through the Red Sea. Hence the great song of triumph that you have recorded in chapter 15 where they praise the God who is fearful in holiness and doing wonders. Salvation is not really mainly about us, even though it's us who are being saved. It is actually mainly about God who is doing the saving. The praise and the glory in heaven is not to the redeemed, it's to the redeemer. 
And it's so easy to lose sight of that. Why? Because of the sin that's still attached to our faith. It's part of the dross that has to be burnt off that everything is somehow about us. It's all about us and our journey, our experiences. It's actually about God and his glory and the fact that the depth of his mercy are being revealed in salvation. Something that would never be known had a people not been lost and had a saviour not come to save them. The glory of salvation isn't in the saved, it's in the saviour. It's in the saviour. And that's the primary reason that God brings his people to the Red Sea, just to show his own glory to the world and indeed to the church. And of course he he further defeats Egypt in doing so and shows himself great in doing that and delivering his people. You see, God's got Pharaoh to deal with too. I've often said this to you in the past that when God is dealing with us, don't forget he's dealing with others. We sometimes, you know, wonder, well, why is God doing this with me just now? Well, maybe it's because of somebody else. Maybe it's because of somebody else. Maybe you're even longer in your situation than you expect to be because he's dealing with somebody else. And the fact of the matter is that God's eye isn't just on Israel at this point, it's on Pharaoh too. He wants Pharaoh to come out. He's in the process, as we saw a few weeks back, solemnly of hardening Pharaoh's heart, dangling bait in front of his evil, sinful inclinations because he wants Pharaoh to come after him because this vessel of destruction that is being prepared by God for destruction is just about to be destroyed. So God is accomplishing that too. He's doing this in the world. He's doing that in the church. He's doing this in the life of the believer. He's doing that in the life of the unbeliever. All in the same single series of events. And it will all redound to his praise and his glory. He will gain honour in the church. And he will gain honour in the world too. And when that deliverance is complete. Lo and behold you'll discover that your faith is strengthened. The faith that may have been shaken on this side of the Red Sea. Is a faith that is cleansed and purified as you pass through it. And come out the other side. It's always once we come out the other side that we sing the song of celebration and triumph as we see why the Lord did what he did and how wonderfully he did it. And of course we always need to remember again as I said a while back that God grades our trials too. He grades them. Many a time when you're in the crucible you think that this is going to burn you to nothing. It's going to consume you, this fire. Whereas the word of God says that he will not tempt you or test you, which is what the Greek word there means. It's certainly how it should be understood. He will not test you beyond what you are able. But along with the testing, which may include a temptation, by the way. There's many a temptation inside a testing. Many a temptation inside a testing. God appoints your test. In come the devil with the temptation. But in all these testings, God makes a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Because he does not tempt his people beyond 
what they are able to endure. Oh, that should be a comfort for you, friend. Many a day, and especially many a night. Many a night, which uh, I'm sure you've noticed that all your troubles look worse in the night. And, and when you feel that this one is too much for you, that there's a text to cleave to, that he will not tempt you or test you beyond what you are able to endure. With it, he makes a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, the fact of the matter is that these things are mysterious. We are actually told here that the first di- diversion that they took, avoiding the 11-day trading route, was with a view to avoiding the Philistines. In case the people would see war and go back to Egypt. Now it's not a mystery. It's a mystery from several perspectives actually. But it's certainly a mystery from this perspective. Um, I'm sure there was a way of dealing with that too, we would have said. Was there, not, was there not a special way of dealing with that? Well, no. God said that this way would involve war with the Philistines. But he didn't want them to have war with the Philistines. He would much rather them pass this trial that was appointed for them, which is the crossing of the Red Sea. Fear. Nothing to touch them, but simply fear. How would they deal with fear? Now notice, God chooses one trial over another. There was a trial which said, ah, that will discourage them back to Egypt. That's not going to be their portion. But I'll give them this one. And once they've seen my glory in this one, they'll be able to meet Amalek in the wilderness. Isn't that wonderful? Because what it does tell you is that God knows you, knows your frame, and takes you exactly where he wants you to be. Exactly where he wants you to be. It's not too much for you. It's not too difficult for you. Just repeat that psalm that you learned as a child. I waited for the Lord my God, and patiently did bear at length to me. He did incline my voice and my cry to hear. God knows what he's doing. Well, that's their triumph. They've been obedient to God, but they're hemmed in. Their duty is to wait. But how do they respond? Well, first of all, we're told in verse 10 that they were afraid. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. Now, you can't really help that response. Fear um, is instinctive, really. It's a very uh, primitive emotion in that respect. You can't help but be afraid. And uh, the fact of the matter is that whenever we encounter any difficulty as Christians, we always need to remember that the, that the power of the world and the flesh and the devil is actually greater than us anyway. It always is. The power of evil is always greater than you. I'm not saying it's greater than God. That's absurd. That's the whole point of this. But it is greater than you. We have every reason to fear principalities and powers. There's every reason to fear Pharaoh. 
Because if they're going to fight flesh with flesh or chariot against chariot, well, it's a waste of time. Well, they don't have chariots to start with. They've got no weapons. He took 300 of their best chariots along with who knows how many other ones. Infantry. I mean, there's only one winner in this combat. There's only one winner. Just like when, when you try to live in the world in your own strength, when you try and live a Christian life in your own strength, there's only one winner. There's only one winner. It never works. You fall in the battle. At best, you're badly wounded. At worst, you desert. Because you're fighting powers and principalities with flesh and blood. It's every reason to be afraid of the devil. Every reason to be afraid of the world. It's strong. It's powerful. It's got a tremendous attracting power on the one hand and a tremendous persecuting power on the other. It sucks you in and it crushes you. It's way beyond any resistance that you can put up yourself. The fact of the matter is that Israel need making every allowance for that initial response they need to take their eyes off the Egyptian army and lift them onto the Lord who was with them after all and the strange thing is that it sounds in verse 10 as though they're doing that because we're told that when they lifted their eyes they saw the Egyptians so they were very afraid and then we read that the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and then they spoke to Moses now actually there's a lot to be said for that because at least at this point unlike later they've got the order right at least they're going to God with it I mean certainly later on you find the first thing they do is run to Moses and complain but at least here they are crying to the Lord and, and, and that sounds as though it's a good thing but is it a good thing there are different ways of crying to the Lord there are different kinds of prayers there are very different spirits in which you can offer a prayer to God sometimes we ask for things amiss sometimes we pray in unbelief we're actually angry with God and we mask it with certain pious expressions that we use but actually deep down there's anger and unbelief this cry to the Lord is not a cry of faith it's a cry of unbelief and there are two ways that we know that the first is the way in which they speak afterwards they immediately turned to Moses and said have you taken us out here because there was no space to bury us in Egypt we told you this we told you to leave us alone we told you it would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness was, was that the effect of their prayer you know I've sometimes been in situations sad to say where rooms have been full of tension people against each other and uh, sometimes it can happen at church assemblies and uh, people are virtually at war with each other and someone says well let's pray over this before we decide on it and you can tell on the prayers that no one's really praying there's a, there's a spirit in the place. And as soon as the prayers are finished, the strife and the argument begins and it's let loose. None of those prayers were of any avail. Why? 
They were offered in a wrong spirit. The Lord didn't hear. They bounced off the ceiling and back down again. It's, it's how a person acts coming off his knees that tells you how he was on his knees. I mean, if, if I come off my knees and begin to be angry with my wife or with my children or whatever, what was I doing on my knees? I certainly wasn't praying to God. If, if these people had cried out to God, their first words to Moses wouldn't have been words of utter rank and belief. It's, it's easy enough to pray like that, but, but to, to really pray, to really come into the presence of God, well, the, the evidence of that will be in how we are coming off our knees. They certainly weren't in a good place. Here we go. This is the first time we've heard this Oh, we'd have been better off in Egypt. It's not the last time we'll hear it. It's better to, to be in the world with its certainty than it is to be a Christian with all its uncertainty. What blasphemous words these really are. I mean, that's, that's what they are meant to, you know. And there are times when the evil heart of unbelief comes out with that and says, Oh, you know, when I was, when I was in the world, I, I didn't have this kind of difficulty. I didn't have this kind of problem. I mean... Things were far more predictable and straightforward. I'm finding in the Christian life everything's so unpredictable. Oh, really? And, and that's the kind of attitude that, that keeps us in servitude to Egypt. Uh, again, you find it in connection with things like I made reference to in my prayer life. Oh, it's far easier for us just to, to keep all our children in the state education system. And it's far easier. It's far easier economically. It's easier socially. It's easier in every way rather than to take them out with all the uncertainty and the difficulty. It's easy to, to stay in this church where there's barrenness and emptiness and unbelief rather than, oh, the, dif the difficulty of coming out and doing something else. You, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? It would have been, we said this from the start that it would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. No, it's actually better. It's actually better to be in the wilderness as a Christian than to have the garlic and the cucumber and the leeks and the melons in Egypt. It's actually better. Better to be free in the wilderness than a slave in Egypt. It's just that for some strange reasons, as Christians, we sometimes forget that. Sometimes forget it. And we stop taking risks. And we stop living for God. And we settle back into comfortable and easy lives because... That deep down is maybe what we want. But that's not what God called us to. And we accepted that at the beginning, but for some reason we stopped accepting it. Who knows why? Who knows why? So the kind of heart they had in prayer is revealed in their speech to Moses. But as well as that, the second thing that tells us that they weren't in the right place is the psalm. Now, I mentioned already that these psalms are vital because they tell you what's going on all the time. They bring you into the heart of the Saviour. They bring you into the experience of the Church. They are a commentary, an inspired Holy Spirit commentary on the history that we have sometimes in the Old Testament. And we're told amazing words in connection with this experience here. Now, listen to these words. Just consider everything we've looked at in connection with the miracles and everything. Keep all that in your head and listen to these words. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand 
your wonders, your miracles. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled beside the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his own name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. But these, that's wonderful, because again, that's for his own name's sake. But the key here is, they didn't understand your miracles, they didn't even remember them, but beside the Red Sea, they rebelled. Now you would say, I would say too, actually, how on earth is that possible? How on earth is that possible? How can you experience a miracle and forget it? Well, are you honestly going to tell me you haven't yourself? Are you going to be so audacious that you're going to tell me that you haven't experienced God's mighty works on your own behalf and forgotten it? They didn't understand and they forgot. There's a connection between those two things. Why do you think they forgot? Because they didn't understand. Why didn't they understand the miracles? Well, because they didn't make a proper effort to. This takes us back to, again, what I had a few weeks back. You remember the miracle of the loaves and fishes? Um, When the disciples didn't just see Christ multiplying the bread and the fish, but they participated themselves and distributed to 5,000 men plus women and children, probably talking to at least 10,000 people. But we're told afterwards in the Gospel according to Mark that they didn't understand that miracle because their hearts were hard. That too is astonishing. That too is astonishing. The Lord was at work in their midst, but because of the state of their heart, they didn't benefit properly from what was happening. They didn't, as the term is used today, they didn't process it. They didn't process it. Now, friends, um, if you don't process what God does for yourself, if through prayer and meditation especially, let me emphasize meditation especially, if by prayer and meditation you don't think about what God has done for you, and you don't convert it by prayer and meditation into thanksgiving and praise, you'll forget it. You'll forget it. And when the next trial comes into your life, it won't find you dealing with it in the way you would expect to be dealing with it. Because you didn't understand. And you forgot. And you forgot because you didn't understand. And you didn't understand because you weren't meditating and you weren't praying. Even though what God did for you was remarkable enough at the time. (coughs) Remarkable enough at the time. They didn't really appreciate what God was doing. They didn't really appreciate it. And that meant that their response to the first trial was a response of unbelief. To put it another way, instead of focusing on the God who had promised them, who was present with them, and who was ready to be powerful on their behalf, their eyes were focused on the Egyptians. It's the same old story. I remember a good while back when you were meeting in Kulrakarina, I remember preaching there on uh, Peter 
looking at the wind and the waves instead of looking at Christ. And I, I distinctly remember making the point that that summarised more than anything else our Christian failings in our Christian walk. Our inability to keep our eyes on the Lord and instead to be putting them on what's around us. I mean, here they're actually looking at the Egyptians. And even though they're praying, they're still looking at the Egyptians. They're not actually considering the God to whom they're praying and what he has said and what he is able to do on their behalf. Peter amazingly began to sink Although the Lord was in front of him. I mean, he was in front of him. And he wasn't just present, the Christ who was there in front of him, was he? He was actually walking on the water. The sovereign Lord who sits upon the floods was walking on the floods. And yet, he was actually taken up with the wind and the waves. No wonder he began to sink. That's why we always sink. It's why we always sink. And that's why this fear was converted quickly to paralysis, because of unbelief. A simple look to the Lord would have converted it to faith. Now I'm conscious in some ways that I'm leaving this on the negative, really. Uh, Conscious of that. But I I don't want to do an injustice to the positive. We'll leave that tonight, because God comes... For his own sake and indeed for their sake. And he gives them counsel, marvellous counsel, to stand still and surprisingly go forward. How about that for an apparent contradiction? Stand still and then go forward. God's counsel and his deliverance. Let's pray. Eternal God. O grant us grace to learn uh, from all thy dealings with us and uh, especially that we might be stronger when the next trial comes our way. Teach us, O Lord, how wonderful the resources that we have in the Word of God and in the indwelling Holy Spirit of Christ. We pray that um, You would help us to wait upon you when we find ourselves hemmed in by circumstances from which we find it difficult to extricate ourselves. For the Lord will indeed make it plain. The meek in judgment, he will guide and make his path to know. And in the light of that, we pray, show me thy ways, O Lord. Thy path, so teach thou me. Do thou lead me in thy truth. Therein my teacher be. For thou art God that has to me salvation sent. And I upon thee all the day expecting to attend. Amen. (coughs) Now our last uh, singing is in Psalm 62. Psalm 62. In verse 5 he says, My soul wait thou with patience. 
upon thy God alone. I think I might have given the presenter six to nine. I meant five to eight. My soul wait there with patience upon thy God alone. On him depending all my hope and expectation. Well known words. Verses five to eight. Let's stand to sing. <laughs> my soul